Thank you guys for being here with us. It's really good to see everybody. Uh, I want to encourage you guys to come join us this Wednesday for Worship Well. We are going to be talking today about the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to be digging into that a little more deeper and participating in that prayer together this Wednesday. We'll also have a meal, and so we would encourage you to come and join us this Wednesday with, uh, for Worship Well. There'll be a child care as well, and so you can come a little early and we'll you know stuff, stuff food in your kid's face and then put them in child care and then come and join us for Worship Well. So please do that. Uh, we also want to remind you guys that we're doing spring bingo. You can check that out as well. If you don't have one yet, you can grab one. And, and the idea is to have those experiences over, over the month of March uh, with, your, with your family. So if, if you have questions about spring, spring bingo, there's some up there. I can give you one as well. But thank you guys for being here with us today. I'm going to pray, and then we are going to talk about the Lord's Prayer. God, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for church. Thank you for an opportunity to gather You are worthy of our praise, of our affection, our attention. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in week three of our new campaign, which is called Pray Like Jesus. And so we've been exploring for the last couple weeks, looking at the life of Jesus and how he prayed. Uh, The words he used, the places he prayed, his practices of prayer, what he taught about prayer. And our simple kind of broad definition of prayer is it's just simply communication with God. So prayer is how we communicate with our Heavenly Father. And we're exploring the ways that Jesus did that. Now when we talk about prayer in church, I think generally our our first instinct and what we sort of feel is is guilt that we don't do it enough. Because I think most of us know, like, if, if, we look at, if we look at our lives, we're like, man, I could pray a lot more than I do. I could prioritize this a lot more than I do. Others of us are like, I don't even know how to pray. When I pray, when I try, it's like I don't know words. I don't know what I'm doing. I think we've all felt those ways at different times. And uh, when we look in the Bible, the disciples asked Jesus to, to tell them how to pray. And there's instances where he does teach them, but there's also instances where he just basically lets them figure it out on their own. And I think that's a good thing. So two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' prayer life and how it begins with the Father speaking over him. The the Father, when Jesus is baptized, he comes out of the water, and and God basically says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And that's where our prayer life should start as well, uh, grounded in an identity as sons and daughters of God. Last week, we looked at at Jesus' withdrawal to solitude and, and the fact that he would withdraw and be alone with God, even in times when, when it, it had to feel like there's somewhere that he needed to be more. Talking about someone who was literally just walking around and touching people and they were healed. And there were crowds gathering around him to kind of see what was happening with this, with this Jesus guy. And rather than saying, we need to keep the movement going, we need to keep moving and pushing it forward, he would withdraw and be alone with God. And this week, we are, we are looking at um, basically the second half of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus tells us how to pray uh, in what we call the Lord's Prayer. And so I'm going to start reading now from Matthew chapter 6. Starting in verse, sorry, starting in verse 7 of Matthew chapter 6. This is Jesus talking. 
He's got a crowd gathered, the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need, for you ask him. So right before this, he's talking about what, what John preached on last week, which was, when you pray, don't make a public spectacle of it. Pray, uh, pray in private. That doesn't mean there's never a place for praying together as a church body. But our primary prayer life and relationship to our Heavenly Father should not be something that's on display. And then he goes on to say, do not keep babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. That, I think every, every pastor I know, <laughs> myself included, needs to hear that verse. We sometimes think we will be heard because of our many words. If we pray long enough, I've even, as a youth pastor, I would literally pray for a long time because it was a way to calm the kids down. The prayer, well, the prayer wasn't even about the prayer. I would just be like, we'd play dodgeball, and I'd be like, yeah, drink Mountain Dew through a dirty sock. Let's all go crazy. Then I'd be like, all right, we're going to pray. And Lord, and I would take like four minutes to pray, and they weren't paying attention to the prayer. I was barely paying attention. The point was just to get them to pay attention so that then they were paying attention when I could talk even more. And I don't think that's a good heart. The Father knows what you need before you ask him. And he says, this is then how you should pray. And now we're getting into really a pretty short text, a pretty simple prayer. Uh, and we're gonna, but it's, it's honestly, in these few verses, there's so much that could be said. And I mean, we, we really should be probably doing a whole sermon series on just, on just the Lord's Prayer. But again, I'm not gonna babble on. So let's get to it here. Verse 9, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into, the temp into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And that's, that's the Lord's Prayer. Now, many of you, many of you might, might know a, and sort of an addendum, which goes like, for thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory, forever and ever, amen. So probably all of us have heard that at some point. Probably all of us have prayed that at some point. And that's totally fine. It's a good prayer. Um, in, the, in the original, uh, in the oldest manuscripts that we have of the Bible, that part is not there. Really what happened was this prayer, I think there, there was a lot of, it was happening in church liturgy, a lot of communal prayer in the, in the midst of a worship service. They were saying the Lord's Prayer together, and it felt like a little bit of like, ah, we sort of need like a, we sort of need a big finish, right? And uh, so they added the for thine is the kingdom. It's all good stuff, but they added that so that when Andrea Bocelli sang the Lord's Prayer, he could have the big moment, for thine, I'm not as good as, right? Imagine that song without that part, and it's like, yeah, it's not that great, Right? So it makes sense why they, why they added a closing section to that liturgy, and I think that's okay. I don't think there's any issue with that, but in terms of what's actually in the Bible, and then, so then there are, um, I think it's the, the New King James Version has added that to the Bible, but the ones that we generally teach from, the ESV, uh, the NIV sometimes, this is the NIV, don't have that in there. So I just wanted to explain that in case you were like, wait, isn't there more to this prayer? Um, you know, when Andrea sings it, Yes. And in a lot of church traditions, yes, but 
Not in the original, uh, not in the original text. Um, but I did watch the other day. I did watch. I just went ahead and pulled it up because I was like, as I was preparing this and thinking about it, I was like, oh, pulled up the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and, and Andre's there singing. And I was like, dang, this is pretty good. You know, I kind of got goosebumps. And so check it out if you want. But this is, what, this is what's in the text. So I just wanted to make that clear in case you had any questions about that. The other thing um, to point out is these are good themes that we can hit on. Jesus, doesn't, Jesus does not say, pray this. Jesus doesn't say, word for word, pray this. He says, pray like this. That doesn't mean it's bad to recite it word for word. I think it's good. Any scripture I think is good to recite, and this is in the Bible. But what I, think, I think more than that, what Jesus is saying is, hey, here are the themes. Here are the themes that we should hit when we pray. And in a sense, I think what's cool about this is we really get a picture of, of Jesus' heartbeat, of just who he is and how he relates to his heavenly father. So it's good to pray. I do believe it's good to pray this word for word. I don't believe that it's required, that this is how we should pray word for word every time. We're supposed to pray like this, which means we are supposed to hit on these themes, and we'll go through them in just a second. The last thing I want to talk about, just for a second before we get rolling on it, is there's this tension. There is this tension of between personal private prayer, which Jesus talked about verses before this, which John talked about last week, which is being alone in prayer, being alone with God. And then there's this tension between that and this communal prayer, which this is a very communal prayer. And what I mean by that is it doesn't say my Father in heaven. It doesn't say give me today my daily bread. It doesn't say forgive me my debts. It's all us, we language, right? And that means that there is, there is this element of, of community built into this prayer that, that as we're praying these things to God, that we, it's not just about ourselves. That doesn't mean we can't pray it in private. But in a sense, in a sense, Jesus talks about two things that are the opposite the opposite from what we're tempted to do. Jesus says, don't make a spectacle of your prayer and don't pray for yourself. Don't pray only for yourself. I think sometimes Christians, we tend to do the exact opposite of that, which is focus on ourselves in prayer. We're tempted towards that. And if other people see us praying and think that we're awesome, then maybe that's not the worst thing in the world, right? But Jesus calls us to something different. So we have to remember when we read through this, we have, to, uh, we have to remember that it's not a prayer just for us. So now what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go through these themes line by line, spend a few minutes with them, starting with the first one, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is, I think, I think this is the thing that we tend to just skip right past when we pray. Hallowed be your name, which is just, it's just spending time revering God as holy Revering God is set apart, uniquely worthy of praise. The name above any other name. And I don't think, I, I think we can't miss this. I think we tend to go, we kind of go right past this and we, we sort of skip over to give us today, forgive us our debts, help us with our day, lead us not. We kind of do three through five. But the first part of this prayer is so important. And Jesus starts with it. And I think it, it is telling about how we should pray and the reverence 
with which we should approach God. The recognition, the constant recognition of who God is, how worthy God is of praise. I think sometimes we separate it out and say, oh, praise, we sing and praise God, and prayer is something else. And I, I, think, that, I think that our prayer life should include praise, not necessarily praise reports. Who grew up with praise reports? Anybody remember praise reports? Um, and praise reports are cool. I, I used to do praise reports all the time growing up as a kid. Nothing wrong with praise reports. I did a lot of unspokens too. I don't know if you guys know the unspoken, unspoken prayers. I didn't do any unspoken praise reports. That, I don't know. I, just, I could never go there. But uh, if, that's your, if that's your world, if you grew up in church, you know, you know about praise reports. But this is a different thing. This isn't, this isn't saying, thank God that um, my car got fixed and, so, you know, and, and it didn't cost a lot of money. Thank God that we were safe today. Those are good things too. But this foundationally is a different thing about just regarding God as worthy of praise. Having, having a reverence and saying, God, you're holy. There's no one like you. You are above everyone else. It's really the, it's the, it's the, it's the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. They're the greatest commandment, sorry. Or the first commandment. But we have to start here. We can't miss this. Moving on. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this idea is that God's kingdom and God's will, they're really really one and the same. What God's will is for our earth, what God's will is for creation, is God's kingdom. It's a place where where we do God's will. Where humanity and everyone on the earth does God's will. And when we think about, and we, we talk about this a lot, we say that we, we believe kingdom gospel here at our church, which means that the gospel is a lot more and a lot better, honestly, than just you praying a prayer and make sure you don't go to, you, you're going to heaven when you, when you die. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is more than that. We believe that the gospel is about, it's about God's kingdom coming here on earth and Jesus being the king of that kingdom. So when we think about God's kingdom coming, we're talking about the things that, the things that shouldn't be a part of our world. Sin, death, injustice, right? But when we apply this, we wanna, we wanna pray for those things. God, let your kingdom come here. Let your will be done here. We also, have to keep, we also have to keep in mind that it's going to happen. God's kingdom is going to come here. God's will is going to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We, our part, it's not contingent on how we participate. God's kingdom is, is going to come here in its fullness when Christ returns. The other thing I, w- I want to point out is when we think about your kingdom come, I think we tend to focus on maybe the injustice that really bugs us. So if you like, man, I really hate that, I really hate that this happens. And so when I think of God's kingdom coming, I think of that thing being gone. Um, that's not wrong. But when we're praying for God's kingdom to come on earth, earth includes people. 
People includes me. So we should also, in, a, in addition to kind of the macro on earth out there, earth's also in here. Earth's also in my heart. And God, God, I want your will to be done. I want your kingdom to come in my heart. Root out the things in my heart that are not your will. Replace them with your will, God. I think sometimes we, as Christians, we have this, we sort of, like, it's like this us against the world mentality of like, this is us, and that's the world over there, right? And Lord, let your kingdom come there. I think we tend to, not, not, as, not that we would say it that way, but I think that thinking sometimes. And there's so much, there's so much built-in assumption that what's in our heart is already God's will. And when we, and when we wake up every day with that resting assumption that we're in God's will, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to miss things. We need God's will in our hearts. That's a, that's a daily, for me, that's a daily need because I wake up and I get out of the bed selfish every day. Actually, the selfishness starts before I get out of bed. I hit the snooze button while my wife takes the dog for a walk. That's where it starts, right? But she wanted the dog, so I don't really feel bad about that one. Whatever. It's a, se- it's a separate sermon. Maybe a series. I don't know. <laughs> Earth includes my heart. So God, let, let, yes, let your kingdom come and, and change the injustice that's happening out there that, that drives me nuts. But also, God, let your will be done in my life today. Because I'm a couple bad days and a couple bad decisions from being in a really bad place. In my family, Lord, in the hearts of my family, let your will be done. I don't, I don't want to, as a Christian, wake up every day assuming that my will is aligned with God's will. Because, because our paths do diverge sometimes. A lot of the time. Give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. This is about God's provision in our lives. And obviously, bread, very literally, is a food you eat. You all know what bread is. Some has gluten, some doesn't, you know. Pretty simple. Um, I like the Hawaiian rolls myself. I don't know about you guys. But we're talking about provision. So bread means, bread means our needs being met. Bread means money. Bread means food. Bread means shelter. And for for. The American church, there's like a, there's a classic application of this text that, in my opinion, is, is just a little bit, it's not wrong, but it's a little bit incomplete and a little bit thin. It goes something like this. People point to, people point to the Exodus story, and you guys know in, in the Exodus story, the, um, God's people are in the desert. Moses gets them out of captivity. They're in the desert. They're walking around. They're kind of lost in the desert, and they have no food, and God sends manna from heaven, Right? Daily manna that they have to eat as much as they need for the day, but it's not good for tomorrow. It spoils, and then they have to trust God again to send more manna tomorrow, right? And I think a common application in a a church like ours is how do we rely on God for tomorrow's provision when, if we're honest, we know that we've got like, you know, for some of us, the next 30 years squirreled away already. 
how do we rely on God's provision when, when we have so much, right? It's a good, it's a good application. Um, on some level, I think it is good because we do, in a comfortable society, it is really difficult to trust God. It's really difficult to rely on God. You know, you, you go to places where the gospel is exploding right now, you, where you can say to somebody, hey, I've got, I've got abundant life for you that comes from Jesus. And they're like, great, I'm, 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 my life's terrible. And you come, to, you come here and you say, I've got abundant life for you. And they're like, what are you talking about? I look around. My life's great, right? But here, here's, my, here's my issue with this application. Is manna from heaven, manna from heaven was not God's ideal. Manna from heaven is not what God designed. What God designed at creation was you have plenty to eat in the garden. Adam and Eve, you're in the garden, and, and there's plenty to eat. There's some work to do to take care of it, but you're not wondering where your next meal comes from. You don't have to trust me in that way. Here's what you do need to trust me for. You need to trust when I say this is the good stuff to eat and this is the not good stuff to eat. That's where the trust comes from. That's where we trust in God. And so what Eve did, she, she knew where tomorrow's meal was. There, there was. there was plenty in the garden. Wanted what she didn't need. Here's a more simple application of this text. You look at the word give. It's a simple question. Where did your bread come from? Was it given to you? Is it from God? Would it, would, could, could you call that a good gift that comes from God? Put even more bluntly, was that bread given to you or did you take it? Throughout the Old Testament, there's tons of examples of sin that talk about taking. What did Eve do in the garden? She was given what she needed. Instead, she took what she did not need. Abraham promised, Abraham was promised a son by God. He didn't trust, and he took Hagar. David saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof, and he took her. Took her husband's life. And we, we are tempted to take. Instead of relying on God's provision, we are tempted to take. To take matters into our own hands and take what isn't ours. Take what God has not given to us. When Jesus was tempted, uh, he went into the desert and he's tempted by, uh, right after he's baptized in the, in the Matthew account. So it's Matthew 4. He goes into the desert and Satan says, hey, turn these stones into bread. Jesus doesn't do it. Because he knew that that wasn't, that wasn't what God had for him. To, to, to create his own way and to turn stones into bread and eat when he, was, when he had been led by the Spirit to be tempted and to fast. He knew that's not what God had for him, so he didn't do it. 
Here's my point with that. Not all bread is from God. Not all bread is good. So this is a, I, we blow right past this application, but it's really simple. But for some of us, I think as well, it can be pretty difficult to stomach. Where'd you get your bread? Because I think sometimes, I think sometimes we are thanking God. You know, if, if you're in our world, there, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of ethical gray area around how money's earned and all that stuff. I understand that. But I do think sometimes we can be sitting and thanking God for our daily bread. And God could just be simply saying, it's not from me. I didn't give you that. So where, where, where did we get our bread? It's supposed to come from God. It's supposed to come from God. I'm thinking of a, a psalm. I can't remember which one it is, but I can't remember the, the passage of it. But the, the psalm is basically, I look up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. God is supposed to be the source of that stuff for us. And I don't think that means that we're supposed to be waiting with open palms every morning because we, we literally have no, we have no means unless God drops it in our lap. I don't think that's what it means. What I do think it means is there are good ways of earning a living, of, of providing there are good ways to do that that are within God's will, and there are ways to do that that are not within God's will. So where does our bread come from? If you're an employee, if you, like, if you, have, like, if you earn an hourly wage to work a job, earn your wage. Earn your wage. Work hard, earn your wage. Because if you don't, you're taking like, well, they should pay me more. They should this. Maybe. But be honest. Earn your wage. Just like Adam and Eve in, in the garden. It wasn't, hey, everything's provided for you. You don't have to do anything. We believe that work is good because we, we believe that all over the Bible we see God setting forth work for us to do, starting in the garden. So do good work earn the right way. If you're an employer, treat, treat, the people, treat the people who rely on you, treat them fairly. If you're a Christian, treat them more than fairly if you're able to. In doing so, we can have provision that is inside God's will. And so if, as we think through this passage, I, I want all of us to, this is, I think, an important one for us to reflect on and say, okay, as I go back into my workplace this week, as I, as I go back to earning a paycheck, as, as a lot of us do, am I doing what's right? Am I doing something inside God's will? The other thing I want to point out here, again, is this communal aspect. Give us our daily bread. 
It's not give me my daily bread, right? We, not me. As followers of Jesus, we know that we can be instruments of God's provision as well as recipients of God's provision. So if you have, if you got a lot of bread, part of this prayer might be, how do we, how can I be a part of all of us having our bread? It might be, might be uh, charitable giving. It might be something different. So to sum up the daily bread idea, are we earning money in a way that would be within God's will? Are we investing money in a way that's within God's will? One of the things that freaks me out about being an adult with like, you know, uh, IRAs and things like that is those, a lot of those things are set up specifically they insulate me. I don't really know what's going on with that money, right? At one point, I found it when I was, I don't know, I was in my 20s, and some, some IRA dude came to our church, and he got us all set up for mutual funds, and, um, and we were all like, okay, well, we look at the number, this percentage, and okay, it looks like it does well. We pick our fund, right? One company that's in the fund. I don't know one company that's in the fund. So I asked, hey, what companies are in this fund? I got a list. And I saw some companies that I was like, oh, okay, well, I, I'm selling cigarettes now. Great. I didn't know that, right? We all, these are difficult ethical things to wrestle with. But I think we need to think about these things, not just in our, not just in our job, but in the ways we invest too. A lot of that is set up to keep us insulated on purpose so that we, <laughs> so that we don't have to deal with the, Ethical dilemma there. And there are, by the way, there are funds created for Christians to not be investing in things like that. There's, an, there's options. It's not just like, well, I throw up my hands. So look into that this week. Very seriously, look into it this week. If you've got like a financial guy or whatever, it's good that they know. Like, hey, here's, here's, the, here's non-negotiables for me. Here's things that I'm not putting my money into. They'll listen. You're the customer. Okay. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We know the importance of forgiveness. Jesus, right after this passage, right after the Lord's Prayer, he, he basically says, if you forgive, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you do not forgive, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. Forgiveness, forgiveness, the ability and the willingness to forgive, I believe, is the number one sign of a, of, a, of a heart and life that's actually been changed by the Holy Spirit. So if Jesus is in your heart, if the Holy Spirit is in your life, you can forgive. It's not, it's not, it's not there's no question there. If, Jesus, if you have actually put your trust in Jesus and you're following Jesus, you can forgive. Period, end of story. If your heart isn't changed in that way, go back to the beginning. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy to forgive every time. That doesn't mean there's never going to be something that takes a while. Is that what I'm saying? But if, if, we're, if we are able to say, like, don't need to forgive, and I feel, no, I, I feel nothing about that, I'm just, I'm good, that's a real problem. 
that's a real, that's a real problem um, in terms of the condition of our heart. This, this passage, it almost comes off as if the fact that we've forgiven is the foregone conclusion. We know that it's not in our lives. And sometimes as Christians, I think we do this, we do it with forgiveness, we do it with other things as well, where we, um, we basically say, well, the Bible says I have to forgive, so I forgive. The Bible says, uh, don't covet, so I don't covet. And it's like, well, that's not, how it, <laughs> that's not what, how it works. That's not what's actually going on in our hearts, just because the Bible says something, right? We need to be doers of the word. We need to do what the Bible says, not simply say, okay, all right, then I forgive. The Bible says I should forgive you, so I forgive you, right? But built into this text, it is. It's like, it, it, it is a foregone conclusion. And in a way, it's almost like Jesus is saying like, why, if you haven't done that, why would you ask God for forgiveness? Why would you ask God for forgiveness if you, if you if you're on purpose harboring unforgiveness in your own heart. And he goes on to say, that's not how it works. God forgives those who forgive. I don't think that means he's keeping score every time, like we're waiting on this forgiveness before I can forgive. I think it's about, a, it's, it's evidence of a changed life. It's evidence of a spirit-led life, the ability to forgive. It's also important for us to consistently come back to and know and remind ourselves of our need for forgiveness. Not in a way that we're, we're, we're consistently doused in shame, that we are always, um, that we're just constantly feeling terrible about ourselves. No, but, but we do need, we do need forgiveness. We need it pretty consistently. Now, in one sense, the work of the cross has already been done. So, so Christ died on the cross. He defeated death and our sins. He rose again. So I don't believe, I don't believe that if I were to, I don't know, kick Michael in the shin on purpose, if I were to do that and then get hit by a car before I prayed for forgiveness, now I'm going to hell. I don't think that. That's not how we should think about this. But, it's about, I believe it's more about a humility of consistently recognizing who we are apart from God, who we would be apart from God, and consistently recognizing that we do need forgiveness. Conf- confessing our sins. In the church that we call the evangelical church, whatever you want to call it, churches like this, confessing our sins, confession, has become sort of a lost art. We just kind of don't do it in a lot of cases. Oh, it's between me and God, and it's like, okay, We need forgiveness. We need to confess what we've done wrong. We need to make it right with the people. We need to reconcile with one another. We need to reconcile with God. We can only even have a chance at that because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. But that's, that's, that should be a daily exercise for us. Lastly, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Band, you guys can come on up. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You might be saying, God wouldn't lead me into temptation. Uh, going back to it's Matthew 4, verse 1. Jesus was led into the, 
led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Right there, in, in uh, pl- really plainly stated. God actually does, in some instances, lead us into temptation. He allows us to be, he allows us to be led into situations where we can experience increased temptation. I'm going to read another passage for you. This is 1 Corinthians. I love this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation is over, overtaking you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you te- be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my friends, flee from idolatry. That last part I love, flee from idolatry. What this passage is basically saying is, God will put you in situations where you'll be tempted. He will not take over the controls of your body and make you sin. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. I think in, in so many cases, then he, then he says flee from idolatry. In so many cases, we actually pursue things that put us closer to idolatry, and we think we're standing firm. And what, and what, what leads us not into temptation is sort of the opposite of, of how we tend to think and even pray. What do we idolize? What do we idolize in our society? Money? Power? Influence? We tend to ask for more of those things. God, if, if I just had more influence, I could do so many good things for you. If I just had more money, I could do the good things I could do. If I, if I had more power, the things I, if I was a leader, the things I could do. Those are the things that actually lead us into more temptation. And God actually does. He, he calls people and leads them into that, those things. God called David to be king. There's more temptation when you're king. There's more temptation when you're king. If I see Bathsheba bathing on the roof, I'd be like, oh, bounce your eyes. <laughs> what I wouldn't be tempted to do is take her, make her my wife, kill her husband. Because I wouldn't have the option. David had that option. So God called him and put him in a spot with more temptation. And so often, we are actually pursuing the things that lead us into more temptation. And this prayer is saying, God, I don't know, I don't know if I'm up for that. I don't, I don't know if I'm up for more power. I don't know if I'm up for more, I don't really want that. I don't want the increased temptation. And I, we think that sounds so cowardly when I say it. I don't want, I don't want that kind of influence. I can't, I don't know if I can handle it. That doesn't, that doesn't sound like the way we do things. Jesus in the garden, before he goes to the cross, says, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Jesus says, God, is there someone else who can do this? Is there, is there another way? It takes humility. It takes humility to say, Lord, lead me not into temptation. It's not just, it's not just a verse about, hey, God, please don't take me down the candy aisle at the store. Please let me, please, God, don't let me drive past any hot joggers. That's, I don't think that's what it's about. What we are tempted to pursue when life ends are the exact things that lead us into temptation. And sometimes God will say, okay, let's go there. 
Or sometimes he'll, he'll say, okay, you're going to be a leader. It's going to be harder. Uh, James chapter 3. Not many of you should be teachers. Those of us who are teachers will be judged more harshly. Right? It's all over the Bible. These callings and these things that we tend to pursue and desire for ourselves, maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we shouldn't. Last thing I'll say before we, before we, uh, before we sing. This is a prayer. This is a prayer, um, and the themes in this prayer are designed to change us. They're not designed for us to get from God what we desire. They're designed to change us, to change our hearts. And it, sometimes we sing songs that, um, that w- when we sing together, I think I've had conversations with people where they're like, I struggle to sing that because I don't know if it's true in my life, right? I struggle to say, you're the most God because I know that sometimes that's not true. When we sing, when we pray, when we do these things, it's designed to glorify God. It's also to change our hearts. That, that by, by praying this over time, it will be more true. That when I say, for, forgive me as I have forgiven, over time, that will be more true. So, don't, so I'm encouraging everybody, walk through the Lord's Prayer this week. Pray through these things. We're going through it in the devotional this week. We're going to be we're talking about it at Worship Well on Wednesday night and participating together there. Spend some time with these things this week. And remember, it's supposed to change us. God, thank you again. Lord, thank you for the example of Jesus. God, as we sing now, we pray that you would be so just proud of and glorified by what's in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.